Okay. Uh, thank you, Philippe, for your talk. Um, I can imagine there's uh, quite a few questions in the audience, uh, not just for uh, Philippe, but also for the previous uh, contributors. Um, I'll also ask Martin to uh, come up here uh, and maybe start the discussion if uh, no one is so inclined. All right. Yeah, I immediately go to the floor for questions because all have listened quite long. So if the speakers come here, then you can answer the questions. Who wants to ask a first question? Okay, so I have lots of questions, but uh, the moderator asked me to just ask one. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll go for Catherine Gibson, and, and I hope I'm, I get a chance later on to ask some more questions about the basic income. Um, I was interested to hear that you um, were talking, uh, the way you uh, position the commons as a, a sort of a parallel, uh, on a parallel plane or somehow uh, compared to cap capital uh, uh, and the market, like that uh, there are lots of elements of, of commoning practices within, um, uh, yeah, within uh, uh, firms or within uh, the government or lots of different places. Um, and it seemed to me that, uh, that that's a different notion than, than what I've uh, read in uh, 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 Sylvia Frederici's uh, uh, text, like that, that she positions uh, like uh, like the, the triangle of the, the state, the market, and, and the commons. So I was interested to hear, uh, do you see, uh, am I uh, uh, portraying it the, the right way? Is there a contra contradictory way of looking at the commons uh, between the way you see it and the way Frederici sees it? And could you maybe expand on uh, this concept of that they sort of, there's a constant stream of commons throughout different forms of uh, property uh, relations and that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I guess it, is this on or is it just have to be on? I hear you. Yeah, I know, but the thing they wanted to. Okay. Um, I guess it's a difference between focusing on commoning as a practice, in which case it can happen in lots of different locations, versus the commons as a as a, as a thing, as a property format. You know, which is that that kind of homology I've put up between you know, private property and capitalism, state-owned property and socialism and commons as anti-capitalist or some kind of communist state. So that that's a very categorical kind of uh, system that's focused on property rights primarily. And I'm trying to get away from that, really, to look at practices, in which case there's it's just a more fluid and open kind of setup, I suppose, you know. So it's just, it has a more, it enables a different kind of politics than the other, which is the one that fits into that kind of, you know, anti-privatisation. There's been a lot of that kind of debate under neoliberalism, you know. But, but state-owned property has never been commoned often. You know, there's very few forms of state-owned property that actually has a community that makes and shares it. Yes, we pay taxes that might have meant that the public transport system is owned by the state, but the ways in which a community relates to it are quite different. So I think a lot of state-owned property could be actively commoned, uh, but it would need a different kind of politics than just, you know, just the anti-privatisation kind of politics, which has been a very reactive... Um, you know, and I mean, I, I still support it in many ways, but I think it just leads to a particular kind of resistance politics rather than a more creative and productive politics. Thank you. Next question. Yeah. 
Perhaps just uh, sorry. Yeah, perhaps just a quick follow up, uh, basically, to the last question and to your um, response. Because if we focus on commoning as a practice, and if we say that all kinds of property can be uh, commoned, um, I wonder how that relates, let's say, to the uh, to the iceberg model. Um, you also uh, quoted Massimo De Angelis and uh, David Harvey, the other David Harvey, saying, in spite of uh, capitalist strategies to deploy a commons fix to its problems, commoning may, may well be part of a different trajectory. So is your um, contention that, uh, let's say, applying uh, commoning uh, strategies and practices to uh, the private sector, to the state, will ultimately also result in, let's say, a different balance and in perhaps a sort of the iceberg sinking even further and, and uh, let's say, this top uh, sector that we tend to focus on when we focus on the economy becoming actually um, transformed and in the process actually losing its, its um, um, you know, its current, um, let's say, identity and status. So is there um, is there here an attempt ultimately or an ambition to... Um, really change um, uh, the um, the relative uh, weight of all the different parts of this economy. I mean, it's a big question. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. and I think you're really taking taking the iceberg. It's not a model. It's just no, a representation, okay. and it's just a it's just a, an example of of, of kind of chaos. <laughs> um, so, I don't think I'm implying any of those trajectories necessarily. No, I think I think that would be for me overstepping the role of what my intervention's about. Yeah, just a short answer to that one. I can follow yeah. it up. But. And I would be interested what the role of markets are, uh, is or where markets belong. So that's, for me, that's a really fundamental question. And when I uh, hear the talk about basic income, then you uh, propose to take Labour Party out of the market. And in your story, it's a bit the same, but it's not really well defined, I think. So could you maybe reflect on it, the role of markets? Well, I mean, as I said, I think there's lots of different ways that markets are organised and there's many different ways that transactions are organised. So, and I, in a sense, I agree with Philip in the sense that, you know, complex societies need market systems and pricing systems. I don't see that conflating with capitalism necessarily. I think markets have predated capitalism and markets will post-date it. And so there will always be market, market frameworks for transactions for supply and demand transactions and so on. There'll be fair trade markets, there'll be niche markets, there'll be protected markets, there'll be all the different kinds of yes. markets and then there'll be also ways of transacting goods and services outside of monetarised systems, um, which could be community currencies or barter networks. I think all of these things will and need to coexist. Um, and, you know, yeah. So I, I, I guess I'm not... I'm arguing for a more complex and diverse yeah. economy in all sorts of dimensions, not just just ownership and business and work, but also markets. And that, it, you know, to keep talking about the market is just use, use of a huge abstraction, which I think has dis, been a disservice to us um, in terms of economic analysis. Yeah, I know that's true, but if you say labour should not be organised via the logic of markets and maybe also money and maybe also nature, so that's quite clear, I think. So then, you, then it's easier to understand, maybe. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the labour markets, again, can be quite diverse. I mean, a labour market for a network of worker-owned cooperatives is a very different labour market yeah. than for, um, you know, very exploitative, you know, um, 
capitalist corporations and very different again for corporations that are signing up to some kind of social responsibility or green responsibility. So again, I think you know, I would want to be more specific about that and how a basic income strategy yeah. would fit in with all of those things is quite different. I mean, I think what James Ferguson's arguing in the South African case where a form of basic income grant is being um, performed there or introduced, it's allowing for a, div a, a growth of uh, a sort of non-capitalist and entrepreneurial culture. <laughs> You know, so it's not that it's it's affecting the formal labour markets, which for many blacks and others have been there have been excluded. It's actually giving people a small amount of capital to get going on small enterprises, which are part of a so-called informal economy. You know, so there's I think there's multiple ways in which it could feed into diverse economies rather than only seeing it, it its effect on uh, a so-called kind of capitalist you know sector. The next question. What do you gain by having another view of economy? What do I gain? <laughs> well, uh, I, get, I, get, I get the ability to breathe. <laughs> That's what Donna Haraway said when she read our first book. She said, I feel like an iron brace has been lifted and I can breathe again. I, yeah, I feel like um, a lot of economic analysis forecloses a kind of politics of possibility. So that's what I see an, a rethinking of economy does. Can you say that a little bit slower because it's too fast for Sorry, me. I, I think a, a, a rethinking of economy and a challenging of eco dominant economic discourse allows for more imagination around political possibility. Mm -hmm. and I mean, I feel like I, I started this work having been um, schooled as a Marxist where uh, you know, revolution was always going to happen at some point when the falling rate of profit got to a certain crisis. And uh, it just meant keeping, you know, we wrote a paper called Waiting for the Revolution or How to Smash Capitalism While Working at Home in Your Spare Time. And that's, uh, that's what I've been doing for a long time, trying to work at home in my spare time to rethink economies in a way that will enable ethical action rather than wait for various mechanisms to either unravel or continue to create, you know, the systems we live in. Yeah, may I ask one yeah, yeah, ask another question. Uh, you and uh, Philip uh, use both the, the verb surplus. Mm -hmm. And uh, if everybody is doing what he has to do just for living uh, and to keep alive and to uh, reproduce more uh, of the working, uh, working possibilities, eh, the human capital, uh, you spoke of that, eh, I think. Um, if everybody is just doing that, uh, what, if, what will be the surplus then? What gives the surplus? What is the surplus uh, that you mean? Both well, of you. I'll, I'll, I'll say something and then... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, the surplus is what we, what those who aren't working on, who aren't wor actively working and earning an age, a, a wage, are actually living on. What is it that's creating care for the elderly? What wealth is it that's being circulated to look after them, to look after children? There's obviously every society pretty much has to, or at least since kind of very primitive kind of uh, hunter-gatherer societies, produce some kind of a surplus that is circulated and distributed for those who don't 
produce wealth. And uh, it happens in, you know, analysis of that can happen in many different ways. In most mainstream economics, the term surplus doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's disappeared. Uh, but why is it you have corporations where the difference of wage between the lowest worker and the highest <laughs> is of one to 200 or 300 as it is in many corporations? You know, there's clearly some surplus being moved around in those corporations. But I guess my question is about the basic income grant is it seems to me the cases are based on situations where there's a sovereign wealth fund, where there's some kind of way the nation marshals wealth mm -hmm. in order to supply that basic income. It's, it, as I understand it, you're not arguing it's going to come through the taxation system because, as you said, most wealthy people don't want to give money to, be, to get it back as a basic income or to give it to everybody else. So what is the mechanism by which sovereign, these sovereign wealth funds, apart from ones based on oil and resources, um, will be established? That's Ever heard of democracy? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's but, uh, suffering but, somewhat on the economic front. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But first on the notion of surplus, and so uh, my notion of surplus is uh, uh, bigger, uh, sort of more uh, uh, encompassing than the one you mentioned, and because I have the, the, the way I used it here was a sort of pretty strictly orthodox Marxist notion of surplus, where it was whatever was being produced beyond what was produced by the Notwendiger Arbeit, that is by the necessary uh, labor. Workers. Sorry? Of productive, so called productive workers. No, no, no. no it uh, it's whatever, whatever, whoever appropriates it, whether it's given to the inactive or given to the capitalists or, or given uh, as an. As a, as a top up on uh, the wages. Mm -hmm. And so it is whatever is being produced above what is needed in order to reproduce the uh, means of production in the broad sense, that is, the, the labor, the, both the labor power and the material means of production that being used, being used up in the current period. Mm? Whatever. And so part of it will be reinvested, part of it, but much of it today, thanks to uh, the thanks to the, the, the action of the, the struggle of the, the working movement, but uh, thanks to democracy and thanks also to the self-interest, the enlightened self-interest of the capitalists, uh, much of it takes the form of our high salaries, right? Uh, so well, in a fraction of the world. In, in, a, in, fraction, in a fraction of the, of the world, world. But, but even yeah. in, the, in the poorer parts of the world, like, uh, say, uh, take uh, Brazil, and so, of course, many people uh, live uh, close to the poverty or under the poverty line, close. But lots of workers are also paid. Uh, my colleagues, uh, you colleagues in uh, in Brazil and University of Campinas have uh, uh, salaries which are comparable to ours, and which also incorporate quite a bit of that rent huh? that they, of of this surplus. And so that's uh, now the question is. And so your question then is uh, is. Uh, then what should we rely on? In the case of Alaska, it is a sovereign fund, and uh, some people have uh, advocated doing that for other sovereign funds, like uh, in Norway or uh, in other, uh, in the few other parts of the world where there is a significant uh, sovereign fund. But, uh, <laughs> sorry? Yeah. It's all fossil, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Minerals and fossil. But but I I don't uh, so in the in the case of uh, Macau it's not a sovereign fund it's part of the of the the, the current uh, revenues from uh, casinos that are being uh, distributed uh, in this way but uh, so in in uh, it's true 
I haven't talked uh, earlier about the way in which it should be funded, say, in the case of, uh, of the Netherlands, but the same would hold for Australia. Uh, if you introduce a partial basic income, it must uh, go hand in hand with the reform of uh, the personal income tax. And so that what you do is uh, you, at the same time, of course, part of it is self-financed in the sense that uh, you uh, abolish all the, the benefits that are lower than the income of the basic income. You reduce all the higher benefits, like unemployment benefits, pensions, by the amount of the basic income. So in this sense, and that basic income still only forms the, the, the lower unconditional part of the, the total of their benefits. But then for all the people who have a regular and sufficiently high uh, income, you simply suppress the, the vrijstelling or the, uh, the exoneration of the lower parts of their income tax or the low, uh, the, the, the range, and the, so there, is, there are also low income tax rates for part of the, of the range, and so you lift the, to 40% or so, and you are taxed from 40% from the first euro you earn, okay? And all that is sufficient then to, uh, to, to fund most of the basic income in this way. There, is still, there are still net beneficiaries, mainly part-time workers, huh? and so you need a, a small adjustment of the personal income tax in order to do that. Now, but, but there are other forms, that the, the simple, simplest way of going about it. Now, if, if we think, as I do, that uh, some forms of indirect taxes uh, uh, should play a role, in particular those that take uh, energy consumption or pollution into account, so uh, energy taxes or, uh, or uh, green taxes in both sense should play a role, well, they must also, they can also and must be used for it. But of course, we must realize that this increases then the cost of the goods that need to be bought with the basic income and uh, offsets parts of the real value of the basic income. But, but there is no principled reason why this should be excluded, nor why the personal income tax should be excluded. What makes it possible? Democracy. But one of the big problems that democracy has is actually getting company taxes paid, especially by corporations who keep moving around. So, I mean, Australia, we have a huge problem with trying to raise the tax basis because all the mining companies are paying nothing. Yeah. Yeah, and is so. a basic income possible on a community level? No. no. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think? I, I don't know. I you don't know. know? No, I mean, like, you know, I think ways of supporting people to survive whether, you know, in some way, in, in whatever way possible, whether it's, I know in the, in the Philippines where I've worked, I mean, a lot of people there are interested in um, supporting self-provisioning a lot more. Mm -hmm. So why, why getting people to get a job to get the money to buy the food when actually they're in an environment where they could be growing the food in more diverse ways directly? So I think there's lot, there needs to be a lot of strategies for helping people to survive well. Uh, and basic income is one, one of those strategies, but there has to be a range of others, particularly in countries where, you know, this is just politically never going to happen, it seems to me, you know, yeah. and yet there are other things we can do. I agree with that. Next question. Yeah. I have a question about the, the basic income, but more of a, a kind of taking it a different direction. Um, one thing that I have thought a lot about um, in terms of kind of neoliberalism is that um, one of its effects is that it makes it much harder to kind of identify collective interests. Like there's a very much push to kind of individualize people and sort of keep them from forming. And, and, and both of your strategies, obviously, in the commoning 
is kind of moving towards an idea of like identifying collective interest and, and the basic income in some ways seems like it would be pushing things the other direction. So while it gives the individual worker, for example, a kind of bargaining power, it does it in a way decrease the kind of bargaining power of the kind of, you know, I could see it really having a large effect on unions and being really negative in terms of, of union bargaining power or, or communities that form then around specific uh, industries or really any kind of communities that form. So, so that in a way, doesn't that propagate still some of the most kind of adverse effects that capitalism has? Good question. Um, there is a, an ambivalent relationship between uh, a basic income and community in general. And so, on the one hand, uh, uh, compared to the current uh, bestand uh, or uh, uh, the existing forms of uh, guaranteed minimum income, uh, basic income, precisely because it's strictly individual, is in fact pro-community. Uh, because it means that if you live on your own and you decide to go and live with someone else, uh, of course that is good for uh, globally because you'll use only one fridge, only one uh, washing machine. The, if many people do that, well, you'll need less housing uh, and uh, so the agglomerations could be more compact, etc. Rather, So it's a good thing. But under the current system, if you choose to do so, you are penalized. You are not encouraged. You are penalized because you lose part of your benefit. Mm -hmm. And so the very fact that it's strictly individual uh, means that it's an encouragement for people to go and live together. So the, the economies of scale that result from living together are not uh, clawed back by the authority. And so it's a systematic way of encouraging communities in this sense. You can live with two, three, four people. Uh, as you know, in, in Holland, if you live together, five people together, you can't all get the, the same amount uh, of, uh, of benefit of based on uh, the same, same one you would get if you were on your own. And you can see the logic behind it, but at the same time, it has the perverse effect of uh, uh, sort of creating an isolation or a loneliness trap for a number of people. That's one thing. But uh, so in this sense, it's very pro-community. But you are absolutely right in saying that uh, a basic income, what's essential to basic income, is the bargaining power it gives to the individual. Huh? Mm -hmm. So it's it, it's the bargaining power that it gives to to the to to the woman to drop the partner who <laughs> mistreats her because she's no longer as dependent that would would otherwise be the, be the case on on uh, on his income or on market income you have this unconditional thing but it's also something that gives an individual bargaining power to the worker so that for the improvement of his conditions it is less dependent than he currently he would be less dependent than he currently is on the collective bargaining power of the trade union and it gives him the it gives a worker more power with respect to his partner, with respect to the bureaucrat, with respect uh, to the boss, but also with respect to the trade union, of which he may or may not be a member. And that is, well, we must recognize, double-edged. That means that the, the trade union, certainly a basic income doesn't make the trade unions uh, redundant, but it will require them to uh, function in a way that takes this into account. Unions is because um, often like individual interest and collective interest are, are very different, and 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 that I think that there's a need for kind of us to continue even within the structure to identify our collective interests in 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 certain ways like the individual 
the individual's interest is about generally kind of maintaining, you know, their survival, their lifestyle, their kind of well-being. The collective interest tends to, you know, focus more on things like the environment, et cetera. So, like, in terms of, you know, industry and, and, and environmental impact and things like that, I think we still need to be thinking collectively in terms of what our interests are. Maybe it doesn't have to be through, I mean, maybe maybe income structure and finance is not necessarily needing to be related to that. But I just wonder if it, if these kind of, if a solution that pushes us even further into kind of an individual mode of operating is, is the solution right now. Of course, yeah, of course. There's no necessity. I mean, we're so individualized in our society. I mean, even unions, I think, have individualized their claims. They're all about higher wages rather than, in many cases. But there are many unions, there are many, and the reason that union membership has gone down so much is a lot of, there's a lot of issues there. But I mean, the other thing is one one could see the Baker's, the income grant is not just income necessarily. You could see it as capital. I mean, it could be used to, you worker owner buyouts by unions. If unions were interested in economic democracy at the site of production, many of which say, which aren't, but those that could be, could actually access this fund to begin to reshape ownership as well. Mm. Similarly, individuals could get together as collectives and start to fund their own worker ownership. So I think just because it's called income and just because it's individualised, we shouldn't essentialise this. The, the trajectories that this could go are, are multiple. But of course what we need is a discourse around collectivism that people can identify with mm. as opposed to assumed ones that we've got from the past which are like, you know, connected to union solidarity which in many cases I think have, have done a disservice to economic democracy. Mm. I mean, it's very specific in different contexts. So please, of course. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. or they get one. I'm still a little bit puzzled about the basic income to, well, I understand when you say that it's emphasizing the individual, but I'm asking myself to what community it is speaking. So when you say that citizenship is important, is it essentially kind of reinforcing the nation state, which then I would like to think in relation to the commons and what I always like to think through in relation to the commons, also in relation to this sentence, no commons without community, what do we do with the newcomers? And, uh, and how is that? So where are the, ex where, can we think of any kind of exclusion mechanisms that then kind of uh, challenge the moment of the basic income? And the moment of the newcomers, I would also like to ask Sarah, because you have this kind of like really practical um, example and the group, the collective of the unusual business, how do you deal with newcomers in the group as a group that uh, wants to practice the, the commons and very well does so? so. Is it? Okay. okay, thank you for your question. Okay, I can't act, well, I cannot answer anything related to your first question <laughs> because it's your turn. Well, actually that's a, that's a point that we are discussing discussing right now as we are eight members in the uh, like unusual business group. And we sometimes tend to use the core group. When you use core group, it's like, it immediately relates to hierarchy, which is something we don't want. So there is already first problem. Then we cooperate with a group of 10 researchers who are doing like uh, case studies and they are temporarily involved and then they like move away again. 
And then that relation between the, the organizational group of eight members and the, the case study researchers, yeah, what is, the, what is that relation actually? Is there, is there a difference in power, for example? What is the power relation? How do we relate to each other? And that, yeah, so that is the question of in and exclusion of the group of unusual business. Actually, we want to be an open research group. But as we're exploring our own organizational structure continuously, growing is uh, complicated. <laughs> so yeah, we don't have an answer yet there. But it is something that we're, we feel that is a struggle. And we need to come up with solutions there, I think. Yeah. I don't, it does, this, this is an answer. Could I basically, I mean, also with the newcomer's question, could I, if I, after the, the uh, get together here, come and say, like, oh, I would like to be part of the co group? Yes, you so can. What would that be? Yes, of course you can say <laughs> so. Challenge it a bit. But, okay, but it is, the, the group is, the, the, like, the eight members are also changing. Mm -hmm. yeah. People go away and new, come, new members come. And then, we, we, we were five ones, now we are eight, we, we used to be ten. So it, the, the, the size also changes. So anyone who's interested to join, please let us know. And then we'll, at that moment, we, we will find out how we deal with it. So we don't, we don't have an, uh, an access or an in an exclusion strategy. <laughs> I'm really interested in exchanging exactly these kind of uh, dilemmas, maybe, yeah. and moments of being transparent, how without really realizing that you are a hematic as a group, how can you nevertheless be, be aware of that and open up mm -mm. to people who would not even think about it because it's, it looks hermetic, this community. And, then I have for you uh, <coughs> an analogous answer. That is, suppose uh, bas basic income were introduced in the Netherlands and you arrive here and uh, you decide to settle and uh, whatever your nationality, you'll be entitled to uh, the basic income. So um, basic income must not be linked to nationality just in the way in which uh, the current bystand uh, that's one, uh, is not linked to it. And that was one of the inconditionalities that uh, I mentioned was shared. So. Basic income must be related to permanent residents on the territory. So you may want to exclude the tourists, right? You may want to exclude the, the diplomats who don't pay tax here. And uh, you may want uh, also to exclude the, the prisoners uh, because they receive more than a basic income in the services they have uh, in, in prison. But of course, they're entitled to it as soon as they put their foot out of uh, of uh, the, the prison, but everyone else should be entitled to it. And there is, of course, the problem, what's the connection then with uh, community? Of course, all this is far easier to organize if there is uh, no one going out and no one coming in. That's why uh, the, my answer uh, to you when you said, is it possible at the level of a small community? There's no way in which Utrecht can organize its basic income, mm -hmm. uh, just as uh, uh, there is no way in which cities in general should uh, f organize themselves and fund themselves 
any generous uh, social solidarity system because uh, it will have as a systematic uh, consequence uh, that uh, the uh, potential beneficiaries will keep flocking in and uh, uh, contributors will keep uh, uh, getting out. And so after uh, maybe half a year, maybe 10 years, <laughs> maybe 20, 20 years, problem, the yeah. whole system is completely kaput, right? Yeah. So that's not what we want. But then, uh, so we need it certainly at the level, at, at, at least at the level of a country. First, today, uh, given that uh, uh, there is at, at least as much movement uh, at the borders of our country as there used to be at the border of, uh, of each village or each uh, town uh, in the past, we need to take that uh, into account uh, too. Unavoidably, at the, uh, so the number of things follow. One is if you introduce it at the level of a country, you'll have to have the same sort of restrictions that make Bestand viable. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, not everyone can just come in, say I'm a permanent uh, a dweller of uh, the Netherlands and therefore I'm entitled to Bestand. If you did that, uh, it would be very problematic for the viability of any general system. And because of this, it would lead to a risk to the bottom of the various protection systems uh, in Europe, whether in terms of level or in terms of the conditions that put on uh, getting, getting it. So you need some, some sort of uh, uh, filter at the entrance. Of course, that is also an argument for doing something at a high level. And, uh, as uh, Adrian knows, uh, I, uh, I'm, I've been defending for a number of years the introduction of a euro dividend, mm -hmm. a sort of small basic income, 200 euros, funded by VAT at the European level, and, and uh, also modulated according to the cost of living in the various countries. It's important for all sorts of reasons, partly the Bismarckian unification reason I mentioned before um, in an analogy to that, but also for the viability of the euro. The euro will not be viable without a systematic, automatic uh, solidarity that, would that could only operate through uh, this, uh, this sort of system. But it is nevertheless problematic. It's a problem you have here in, in Holland, this mobility, even with your basic pension. Holland is a forerunner because it has a big basic income for all people. It's the only, with Denmark nearly there, it's the only country in, in, in Europe, not in the world, Bolivia has it too, that has a, a real basic income for all people, irrespective of, uh, of, of past career and uh, of family situation, etc. You, you get a basic income. But what happens if you, no longer, if you decide to go and spend your old days at the Costa Brava? Mm -hmm. Then uh, it's, uh, it's and basic income for the people on the territory. Does that mean that you lose your basic pension? That, if sure you Australia's done. We, we pay lots of pensions to people back in Malta and Greece. <laughs> Old yeah. age pensions, so it, it travels with them. I know, it, and that's what, what happens yeah. in, in, uh, in Holland too. But there is a question, and the, yeah. nevertheless, a question of principle. If, yeah. if it's regarded as a basic income, as part of a basic income that you get mm -hmm. all the way, given that basic income mm -hmm. is given also to the foreigners who come uh, on your territory, why should you mm -hmm. give it? Who should be entitled to it from what age, etc.? And you need to have arrangements. There will always be some sort of bricolage, some sort of uh, mm -hmm. uh, unclean, uh, more or less messy uh, arrangement in order to deal with these sort of problems. Huh? But you need, and that's also part of, of your question, question I, it's not only for the economic feasibility that you need a number of conditions, but also the political feasibility needs 
that something like a feeling of community. And that, uh, but in a sense, less when with the third model than with the second model, less with the model uh, of social protection that says what we are doing is just distributing more fairly the rent accumulated from the past, as it were, partly by nature and partly, and it's not just a matter of solidarity between people who feel a, a glow of, a warm glow of, of solidarity towards other people. Maybe next question. And then I go back to you. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so this question is uh, about uh, basic income for you. Um, so um, you said basically that, that uh, for you uh, a system of uh, a well-working system of basic income would be the ideal uh, society. I think, uh, I think that's... Uh, a number of other things besides. Uh -huh. but, um, but that basic, basically a, a cap, uh, capital and the market uh, are, are good systems uh, if, if they're regulated in a proper way with basic income and stuff. So um, I, I don't agree with that, but um, I do like the idea of basic in income um, as a, a sort of a, a way to transition away from capitalism. Um, you mentioned uh, André Gors uh, and his idea of non-reformist reform, right? Uh, to have a reform that gives you uh, the possibility to move further uh, in the next reform you take, so that moves you away from uh, capitalism, for example. So, um, yeah, I was wondering uh, if you, uh, yeah, because I see basic income in that way, I'm, I'm wondering about the, uh, the possibilities of, uh, of an alternative which, which goes further than uh, ba the basic income. So you said that, um, a, pla a planned economy uh, is not possible on a large scale, um, which which is quite a, quite a, a sort of a statement to make, because it's it's quite contested, I think. Um, so I was wondering if you think it's a a, a possibility to uh, use basic income as a step towards an, another type of uh, another type of type of economy some kind of participated, uh, participatory uh, uh, planned economy. Um, so do you, do you see that as a, as, a, as a valid strategy or do you not take that into account at all? Yeah, well, it's uh, a big question. <laughs> yeah, that's huh? um, so the first thing is that, and I fully agree with what Catherine said uh, uh, earlier, that uh, so, uh, a basic income will have this systematic effect uh, of uh, facilitating, say, cooperatives. Uh, so that is people working, uh, workers taking the initiative themselves and being buffered against the number of risks they are taking because they are both uh, the owners and the workers uh, in this firm through the availability of an unconditional floor. It's also a systematic encouragement of self-employment uh, because you again there you take the risk you are both and the, the owner of the little possibly one person firm and uh, and the worker in that firm and it's a way of buffering and so you could say well this is uh, moving away from capitalist relations between a boss with the employer and and uh, the employee but i don't believe i i, I certainly believe uh, 
200% in the importance of state intervention in controlling the market. And I think the, the, big, uh, the biggest problem we have to face in uh, today's world, in a way, and uh, that has many symptoms, is that we uh, have been moving away from a situation, especially in Europe, I would say, from a situation in which you had a more or less democratic system that was regulating, in, in, including in terms of distribution, a market that was functioning under its supervision, under its control. And so, but it was the democracy that was imposing its rules on the market. And now we've moved to the opposite situation, where we have all these democracies that compete with each other and that are immersed in a market, in the single European market most sharply, and to some extent also in the global market. And there, uh, it's the, the states, the democratic states, that have the, the rules of the market imposed on them rather than uh, the, the other way around. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that we need state control, public control at the right level, and that means at the level certainly higher than our current nation state. Mm -hmm. But this would not turn uh, and should not turn our economies into uh, centrally planned uh, economies. No. <laughs> Yes, but what is participatory planning? Because you know, and to, to put it very simply, the, and what was one of the great, and I, I think the, there were two great big problems with existing socialism as we knew it. Huh? One that was, I think, properly diagnosed uh, by Hayek, which is the fact that you need to uh, have actors that respond to information that's very widely dispersed. And, we shouldn't think that uh, uh, individuals are both geniuses and saints. Uh, if there were, we could function without the market mechanism, but uh, Hayek's argument was we need the, the market to coordinate that. Right? Because otherwise, uh, you get, uh, and so that's the mechanism that enables uh, a producer of shoes to know how many pink shoes with a flower on top they need to produce of uh, uh, size uh, 41 uh, in a, at a particular time. And so you need, and if you don't have that, you have to try to, the price mechanism, you need to try to copy, to mimic it in, in all sorts of ways. That was one objection. And the other objection was the Schumpeterian argument that you need, in order to have technological progress on a large scale, you need the imperative uh, 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 innovate or perish, and so all the capitalists have to fight their own inertia, the inertia of their workers, in order to try to innovate before the, the competitor uh, does it. And so you have, and these two arguments together have, of course, some theoretical backing, but also some empirical backing in the actual experiments uh, that happen. And so therefore, I believe, and so I agree with Catherine when she said that uh, we shouldn't conflate too quickly capitalism and markets. And so there is, a, but I believe there is a role to be played by uh, private ownership of uh, the means of production with then the people who decide on what to produce, when, how, with what uh, mechanism, being private, uh, being private actors uh, rather than the legislators or bureaucrats and, and so on, private actors. 
but I'm in favor of a society in which these private actors would be far more of the cooperative type. Huh? And, and that, and as you absolutely rightly said, basic income can be seen huh, because of the security it offers as a sort of basic capital that is spread over people's lives and it gives them security life and gives them the opportunity not just to choose what they do in their consumption behavior, in their leisure behavior, but also in their productive behavior. And that's absolutely central to the whole idea, but it doesn't turn it into participatory planning or anything like that, because uh, I don't believe, I don't think even the best democratic systems could, should be left to solve the question of how many pink shoes of size 41 should be produced at a particular time. You need, that needs to be decided in a very dispersed way, not through participatory democracy. That's essentially, it's too brief, but your question is very important. Thank you. Then a final question here. Oh, well, what an honor. Thank you. <laughs> Um, I, it's not really a question, it's more of an observation and I would like to check up how you feel about that observation that, I've, uh, that occurred to me this evening, this afternoon. Um, it sounds to me, because I'm familiar with people who are investigating uh, alternative economies, uh, the commons, um, and what I know from these people is that uh, the main challenge that they find is how to upscale it. And I believe that's something you actually mentioned, but I, I'm not recall if it's this or did I, that if I heard it in a lecture two days ago, I can't recall. Um, um, so, and then in your talk, what I hear is that uh, it's almost as if you're saying this cannot uh, be um, applied on a small scale, it has to be applied on a large scale. So. The, what I'm seeing is the, there is one suggestion that exists on a small scale and is struggling with the question how to grow. And there is one suggestion that uh, exists at least theoretically on a large scale but is struggling how to uh, break into reality as well. Um, and well, so yeah, so whether you would agree with that observation and whether there, it's like two puzzle pieces that Need to, yeah. Yes, please. I mean, I, I, um, I resist the notion of upscaling. I think it, it, it has this kind of uh, old-fashioned vision of scale as the local, you know, national and global, and some are more powerful than others, etc. I think the movement to think of alternative economies is uh, horizontally kind of spread across the world in all sorts of places. And I don't know that people want to upscale in terms of get bigger, they want more replication of these things and more connected replication. Um, but the, you know, an intervention that operates at the level of the nation state, which is largely what your intervention is about, although you're talking about pan-national movements like the European payment, you know, I think it, it's, it's going to have, well, first of all, the political will to do it in these days is problematic. And I think anything that's working at that national scale is always going to confront these issues that you've mentioned and that you raised. So, you know, having some sort of globally, globally transversal movement um, that, uh, that gets out of the nation-state issue but starts to look at movements across nation-states, I think, is where we need to marry the on-the-ground and the kind of level of, you know, like the Montreal Protocol. It was an international agreement. There needs to be more of those kinds of things happening. So this obsession with upscaling is really an obsession still with growth, I think, and growth in a very old-fashioned vision. And so I'd like to 
sidestep that language and move to networking and transversal connections, horizontal connections, in range of ways. But that's coming from a geographer who, you know, has been battling with these visions where certain scales are always privileged and seen. Certain scales are seen as powerful and others are not powerful. And of course, the local scale is always seen as not powerful in in the face of the global. And that sort of thinking just, I think again, stymies creative ways of getting around these kind of issues. Yeah. Well, yes, the, the way I see it, of course, is that basic income provides one of the conditions, not for upscaling, but for spreading, for the dissemination of some initiatives that uh, have been tried, uh, sometimes with difficulty, sometimes have failed and couldn't be sustained because there were not some basic uh, conditions for it. Basic income, it's also a way, in, and so it's related in a way to the question about com communities, and so the, and it's, it's a way, and for example, European basic income would, a way of, would be a way of enabling many of the Bulgarians or Romanians who sort of move massively to go and sell their labor power in the richer cities of uh, Western Europe would enable them to stay in their local communities that don't uh, move by, by choice, but because it's so difficult for, life is so difficult where, where they are. And of course, for the commoning activities that you, you mentioned, you need then people who know each other, trust each other, and, and of course, this movement into our cities with all the difficulty for some of our cities to, to swallow, to digest this, uh, this sudden uh, inflow uh, of people with all sorts of uh, backlashes we know. And so there is that, but at the same time there is the, the emptying of the, the, the social capital that existed uh, in the places from, from where they came. And so, so that my answer, the, the way in which I see it is that you need to act, uh, it's important to act locally, but also important to act globally in order to preserve the conditions for the viability of the, or, or to spread or to increase, to develop the conditions for the viability of these local actions. And in particular, as regard redistribution, and the, the problem is if we don't operate on a larger scale, and whether through difficult negotiations, bargaining between countries about minimal uh, uh, standards, or through a transnational redistribution system, if we don't have that, we'll have the various countries competing with each other, just behaving like firms and trying to reduce their costs by uh, reducing as much as possible any sort of subsidy to the, the people who are regarded as unproductive in terms of uh, GDP or whatever. So that, and so that, in this sense, I think there is an essential complementarity between what you need to do on a larger scale and what is thereby made possible and, and uh, at, at, at a local level, and that's what thereby made, made possible that also uh, gives value to what we do at the, at the higher level, because it's not done for its own sake. Thank you, yeah, and the back there was another final question, or not? It already it's already answered, now that's great. Um, yeah, then maybe um, you can give a quite, uh, maybe summarize or a lesson learned from this afternoon, very short, very briefly, maybe uh, 10, 15 seconds each. What was the main lesson for you? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really prepare this No. <laughs> it's a surprise. <laughs> you can start. Are you, uh, Are you, 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 you go and summarize. <laughs> <laughs> you can 
Because everything was put in the uh, scenery of e economics. Uh, both you and uh, his last question about uh, basic income, who will give another economic uh, practice. But I think it's a mistake to only uh, concern it on uh, economics, because I think it will give a total other society. Another, in a society where we are coping with each other on an, in another way. That's what I want to say. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, what, uh, thank you for this. Uh, to give me uh, time to think. <laughs> I think. Um, for me, actually, the the most important lesson from this afternoon is that it is really important to connect theory with practice, practice with theory, back and forth, back and forth again. To like to measure what you were thinking with what's actually happening on the ground. And um, actually, it encourages me in the work we do with unusual business, as this is our aim. And also to, yeah, I think it was very nice to also like um, see ourselves in your theoretical ideas uh, in this afternoon, positioned in this afternoon. So it's really nice to also be in a meeting like this. And as, we, as our uh, meetings are mostly focused on practices, it also encourages me, at least, I have to discuss it in general meeting, of course, <laughs> um, <laughs> to, yeah, to, also, to also think of organizing more meetings about conceptual ideas of the commons related to our practices yeah. as well. Thank so. you, Claire, I think. Philip? Thank you. Yeah, I, I found this notion of commoning, the way you explained it, very interesting, so that uh, it would... Uh, in contrast with the idea of three quite distinct spheres that are in the end practically defined in quasi-legal terms, or certainly institutional terms, and the idea of uh, having a, defining it in terms of commoning that can be to a large extent uh, independent of the, the legal status of the institutions, the organizations in which uh, uh, they, they operate. So this is something I'll keep thinking about. Thank you for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you. And. Um I guess I'm, yeah, I, I do, even though we've been talking about economics, I suppose I feel like we've been talking about politics yeah. because to me that's really why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's, it is about how, what, what, is, what, what role can we play in, in trying to make a different world. And um, so it's been great to hear more about the basic income strategy. It's always been something I've been interested in. It seems like it is definitely part and parcel of what a different world will be. How we'll get there is another question and I guess... Uh, I'm very interested in starting where I am in all my politics. So a lot of the kind of community economic practices are things that I, I feel I can uh, or, or people can start to do right here and now. But I think we need to have these other bigger pictures around um, different redistributive mechanisms and so on. Um, and we need to keep all those things in mind as we try and you know, battle with with the daily life of making a living and trying to, especially I think, live within the, the confines of our planet. And, you know, we haven't really talked about some of the ecological challenges here and that what would we want to spend that income on, for instance? <laughs> Do we want the pink shoes with the, sh with, the, with, the <laughs> with the flower or not? Or is it that that we really have to start working on? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, it's been a wonderful discussion. So Thank you. Uh, yeah, then I give back the mic to Stein, I think, for maybe some uh, closing words. Yes. Thank you.
Yeah, some practical words. There are uh, drinks up for grabs in the next room uh, for who's still interested in sneaking around. Uh, you can uh, keep on discussing informally, of course. And then uh, you're all more than welcome to attend our uh, next forum on the 30th of this month, uh, which will be a commoning art organization with uh, Annette Kraus, um, Nora Sternfeld, uh, Andrea Phillips and the Casco team itself. Thank you very much. This was the live stream of the Forum on Commoning Economies at Casco in Utrecht, January 17th, 2016. Thank you for tuning in. Um, you will find the recordings of the separate presentations as well as the whole event uh, online in course of the next following days. Thank you very much. Check it out on cascoprojects.org. Have a great evening.